0: Two sermons left. So we will finish that book, and then we will begin a new... Well, then, then I'm going to ha- uh, preach a few kind of filler sermons, do a little series on some Christmas-themed sermons for December. Until January, we will embark upon a new study uh, in a book in the New Testament. And it's a book that is often mispronounced. So just so you're kind of curious and wondering, I'll tell you some other time. But it's in the New Testament and it's often mispronounced. Um, so anyway, but for now we're in the book of second Corinthians chapter 13, and as Paul winds his letter down, this is a letter that that he this is this is history. he really wrote it and and he sent it to this church, the new believers in Corinth, and they had their struggles and you know trying to find God and figure life out and trying to navigate um, the the effects of even false teachers that are a huge problem in churches. Uh, it was a big problem in the New Testament days, and it's a big problem in our days as well. But in this final chapter, as a result of this letter and, and Paul's heart to serve these Corinthians in such a way that they live lives that honor Christ, a lot of practical kingdom principles pop out. and We looked at the kingdom principle of God getting glory in our weaknesses and our limitations, things that we don't like about ourselves or things that we wish we could change. And we often have a vision of Christian ministry as God's going to suit me up. I'm going to have my Superman costume and then I can leap buildings and and glorify God with how great I am and with the powers that he's given me. And God does give people powers um, there, there are Christians that seem can like they can just do everything God's gift them in that way. But God's not just bound to bring glory to himself through how powerful or strong or capable we are. He also brings glory to himself in our weaknesses and in our limitations. And so the Apostle Paul points that out. And it's an important principle for us to know. That as we seek God and we, we try to find our place and how we can serve him, we can't always just look at our capabilities. Sometimes it's a matter of our willingness to, to follow the Lord, and that's what the Apostle Paul did. He just took what God had given him and he went and served him with that. So he didn't do everything great. There were, there were falls, there were weaknesses. People could pick on him about, but even in those God used those weaknesses. Uh, the other thing more recently we looked at was Paul's challenge to the Corinthians to test themselves. Examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? And that's a powerful exhortation because there are times when we as believers need to look into our hearts and ask ourselves, am I living for Christ? Because that's what it means to be in the faith. I've, I've put my faith, I've put my life I've put my future into the hands of Jesus Christ, and I am trusting in his sacrificial death. I am trusting that his power will get me to heaven. And that opened the question of, well, if we're to test, would Paul ask them to test their hearts and examine themselves if we can't really know for sure if we're saved or not, because there are Christians and denominations that, that have determined that when it gets right down to it, we can't know for sure if we're Christians or not, that we won't know until the very end. And we looked at there, there are some scriptures that certainly tell us that we need to work out our salvation and we are not to take it for granted. Whatever confession we had, uh, whatever works we've done in the past, we don't take those for granted as our assurance of salvation. But the question is, can we know for sure? And my, my, Conviction is we absolutely can know for sure whether we're saved or not. Now, there are a lot of things that muddy the waters. There are false confessions. There are false teachers. And it makes it confusing for us sometimes to, to know, is that person a Christian or not? And maybe in our own lives we have doubts. That's real. But just as real are those who are firm in the faith and know they're in the faith and are following Christ. And so... Even this morning in our songs, it was a reminder, in my opinion, of the assurance of salvation. He will hold me fast. And I think we, the reason we struggle over, can we know for sure, or do we have to wait to the end to see, is because of our unfaithfulness. Because man is fickle, man is unreliable, and we are not faithful to God. And so when you look at it from that perspective, we say, I really can't know if I'm going to make it to the end. But that's looking at it from what I bring to the table. But if you flip it around and look at salvation from the angle of, well, what's what's Christ's responsibility in this? It's not all my responsibility. One of the scriptures that um, Noah read to us, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians that when you're saved, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit. It's a down payment of what's to come. So... There, there's a, a transition that takes place I think in in the heavens as well in the courtrooms where you, you were once dead and now you're alive and I just I think that any view of salvation that can put that depends on what I can do and my strength when the whole reason Christ came was because we are not reliable we're not faithful we're not obedient it's It's a flawed view. Salvation is based on God's ability. And he will keep a promise. If he's made us a promise, he'll keep it. And we may go astray. We're not going to live a perfect life. And that saddens God. That's not a good thing. But when it comes to assurance of salvation... I write these, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life, 1 John 5.13. And then uh, John 5.24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has passed over from death to life. So there's a, salvation is bigger than just what I can do and I can't do. His perseverance of the saints. He will hold us fast. He will keep us. And so I really like how the Apostle Paul in his final chapter is bringing up very, very powerful Christian dynamics about what it means to be saved and what is our responsibility. What he does in this passage this morning as we continue to move towards the end is he prays two specific things. There's two things that he wants to see. He wants to happen in the Corinthians, the believers there. And so we're going to be treated in God's word to these two aspects that the Apostle Paul is, gonna, is asking God to do in their lives. We find these in 2 Corinthians thirteen, seven through 10. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. So for if we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things, while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So two obvious prayer requests, petitions that the Apostle Paul and his team are praying for this church and the individuals there. I'm praying for your obedience and I'm praying for your restoration. Great ways to pray for ourselves and others. Maybe by the end of the sermon, we will be burdened to do that. So first of all, for your obedience, for we pray to God that you may not do wrong, that we may, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Even if it looks like we failed. So there is this, this prayer that you may do what is right. He's praying that they will walk in the ways of the Lord, that they will be obedient. But what does he mean by, though we may have seemed to fail? I I can't speak about that without kind of rehashing some of what's going on in this church. And you know that the false teachers have come in and they have undermined Paul. They have falsely accused him. They've kind of uh, framed him in such a way as being weak. He's not even... A true teacher of the gospel, somebody that flawed, that timid, uh, couldn't be a true teacher and servant of Christ. So much of this letter has been the Apostle Paul defending his reputation, defending his apostleship. Because if they undermine him, it's only a matter of time before they not just doubt him and his capabilities or his reputation, but they start doubting his words and the gospel. And that's where it gets even more serious of a thing. So there's the two things at work. It's their obedience and then the accusations of Paul's possible or potential failure because the false teachers have undermined him. So he's been under the microscope and they're kind of asking for proof. You know, they're doubting him, unfortunately. As much as he's done for them, they're doubting him. So they want proof, he says in verse 3. So he's taken three approaches. They accuse him of being weak because he doesn't meet the cultural mandates of a strong leader, according to the Greco-Roman culture. You have to be bullish. You have to be confident. You can't be timid. You want people serving you. That's how you show that you're deserving of leadership. That's why people would want to listen to somebody like that. If I walk into into the room and people just crowd around me and how can I serve you Pastor Paul it shows power it shows preeminence and people want to follow a person like that and the Apostle Paul he's serving you guys he's taking burdens off of you instead of you taking burdens off of him so they just turned it all around into a weakness and the Apostle Paul says actually this is a kingdom principle whereby God is glorified in weakness and he says in essence I am living like Christ live. Christ Looked weak in human terms. When he went to the cross, he was manhandled. He was overpowered. He was nailed to a cross. What does that look like? And the Romans uh, looks like the Romans are are inde- undefeatable. Nothing can stop them. But actually, that was God glorifying Himself in Christ's weakness. That's just how God works. Then we saw another angle in which He talked about. Asking them to test themselves. And it wasn't just about them examining themselves. But it was also because his apostleship was uh, being undermined and questioned. And he says, look, if, if you test yourselves and you find out that you're really in the faith. You really believe in Jesus Christ. Then I'm a true apostle because I'm the one that came and brought that message to you. So if you find that you're in your faith, in the faith, then my message was true. Which means I'm a true servant. Of God. And then the, the third um, way that he was going to show his, his true servanthood or apostleship or his power in Christ is he says, "If you don't repent, when I come in person, I will spare none, and I will, I will exercise severe use of the authority that God has given me to exercise as a leader in the church." So these, these this is the Apostle Paul substantiating his role that God has given him. And he's, he's trying to undo or unravel the harm of the false teachers. In a sense, he's trying to save his reputation as a true apostle so that the word of God and his message is not also at risk. They have challenged him. They've challenged his authenticity. And so he says, in essence, in this verse, if you just repent... and and you do what's right, which is what I'm praying that you will do, then I I really don't need to keep defending my reputation because the end goal of my ministry will have been served. So the, the end goal of his ministry is that the Corinthian people would be walking in obedience to God, that they would love him enough to walk in his ways and not do wrong. And if Paul's message and his ministry to them has resulted in that, then Paul is way okay with that. And his efforts to have to, that means they've embraced his message, his efforts to have to continue to defend his reputation and is not as important. That's, that's the dynamic that's at work here. So if you think about it, it's, it's an incredibly selfless, humble position that the Apostle Paul has taken. Because in essence, he's saying, I'm, I'm willing, look, the, the world and the false teachers or whatever, you're gonna, if you're going to believe lies and you're going to say these things about me, when in my heart I know that I love God with, with my entire being, I am serving him, I love you through the love of Christ, that's what's true, that's real and authentic in me, but, but that's not how I'm perceived by the world. And as painful as he is, he says, that's okay. I'll take one for the team. That's, my reputation is not as important as it is for you to embrace the gospel and love Christ because that's the reason I have this ministry at all, to serve others. So it's not as important, in essence, for me to be seen as favored by God in the eyes of the world and others as you to be seen as God's children. That's an incredible thing. Now Reputations are important, and even in Scripture tells us how important it is for us to have good reputations. Now, in a broken world, it doesn't always happen that way. But Paul's not saying, well, reputations don't matter, or my reputation doesn't matter. He's just saying, actually, my reputation matters, but, but you, walking with Christ, that's why I existed, or that's why I uh, served you in that way, is to is to have you walk loving and walk with him. And if that takes place, then I'll, I'll back off. I don't need to stay here and stand my ground. Very, very selfless position. And we know the, that the Apostle Paul is an incredibly selfless person. So reputations. There are a few things as painful as being accused of something that you're not. If you've been accused, or if you've been accused of doing something that you didn't do, when it's your heart's desire to do what's right, that really stinks. You know, it just, it's, it's just a kick below the belt in that. And that's what the Apostle Paul is experiencing, because we know where his heart really is in all of this. So to be viewed as something less than you are is painful. In, in our day and age, it's important. You can be sued for slander. You can be sued for defamation or libel when, when you say things that aren't true because they can ruin a person's reputation. And some people's reputation, how you're viewed, is very important to your livelihood and your well-being. Now we saw this, it's been a couple months ago and I'm so glad it's over because I got tired of pulling up the news and that's what I saw like every day for weeks. But it was a huge defamation and libel lawsuit where millions of dollars were on the table between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And he, there, was, there was a lawsuit that she had defamed him. I think that's what it was, not the other way around. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, ne- I never really read it. I just re- read the, the headlines. Because anyway, I think it was, she, what was it? You're Who? Did, correct. I'm correct. All right, so I'm correct whatever I said in that because now I'm confused. But, but so it, it, it showed the importance of reputation. Now, he was an actor, And so his reputation uh, affected his well-being and his career and the roles he could get. And based on things that were published, that's the libel part of it, not just the slander or the defamation where things that are wrong or lies were spoken, but were actually published and put in writing, that it harmed him. And so this is real stuff. And in that case, millions of dollars were on the line. But reputations, they're, they're a real thing. It's important. And, um, and so how people perceive us. Now, obviously, in ministry, the scriptures will tell us that we need to be perceived by people as being authentic, as being Christ-like, um, because that's a part of our witness. And that's how one of the ways that we bring God glory is by showing the world our, trans, our, our, our authentic, authentic transformed lives. So how the world perceives us has uh, weight to it. Uh, the way the world perceived Paul affects his calling as a minister of the gospel of Christ. But in this case, the bigger harm, what would be even worse to him, is if the Cor- Corinthian church, these believers, just went astray and lived in disobedience to God and believed lies and false teachings. And so he's praying for their obedience. With or without the world's consent and blessing on his ministry, he's praying for their obedience. God judges realities, not appearances. So he's saying, do what's right. Do what's right. That's my prayer. Seek God and do what's right. It's simple, it's basic, but it's, it's paramount. Do what's right. Repent where there are errors in your life. Where you need to repent and get right with God. I'll set aside my reputation. I'll set aside this in favor of your obedience. My personal approval for people. If you walk in the ways of the Lord, then the bigger battle has been won. So it's no small thing. And it's important. You see the levels of importance how, again, the apostle is putting others first perhaps we'll have opportunities in our christian life to walk in this kind of selflessness and in this kind of humility if we look at the apostles part and uh, the apostle paul's heart and where he comes from and his true love for others well-being over his own he says in romans 9:1 i'm speaking the truth in christ i'm not lying Now, you know, when when anybody prefaces something with, I'm not lying, you know they're probably going to tell you something where you think, "Uh, he's lying. (laughs) He said, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So what is he not lying about? What did he have to preface? He goes on to say that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish. That I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ in this, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you hear what he just wrote? He is saying to his kinsmen and his brothers, I love you so much that if it was possible, and we know theologically it's not, but if it was possible, I would take your place so that you could prosper. That's how much I love you. That is a selfless love. No wonder he said, I'm not kidding, guys. I'm not, this isn't hyperbole. That's how much I love you. That's how how deeply I want you to walk with Christ. I want you to know Christ. I'll take the hit for you. Now that's care. That's selflessness. You don't see that very often. Now there are places where we do see it. And most of the time you only see that kind of selflessness in a parent-child relationship. Because with parents, and if you're a parent, you can relate to this, that there are times when you see your children and you do not want them to suffer. It tears you up. It puts an anguish in your heart to the point where you will gladly take their place. Rip my body apart. Do this to me. I don't want my child to have to suffer. If I, gotta, if I have to endure this or I have to endure that, that's, it would be, bring greater joy and delight for me to suffer that so that my child did not have to suffer that. That is selflessness. That's humility. That is loving someone else more than yourself. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. His deepest longing for them. If I got to look like a failure, so be it. But if you're walking with God the King, then I still have a tremendous joy in my heart. And think about also in 1 Corinthians the way Paul wrestles with things like this. In 1 Corinthians 4 2 through 4, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, it's the Lord who judges me. So when it comes to others lying about him, falsely accusing him, the bottom line for Paul is, yeah, okay, that hurts. That hurts, but when it gets right down to it, that's not my identity. You're not going to take me out. You're not going to wipe me out. You're not going to gaslight me, whatever, because my identity is in Christ, and what I believe more than any voices around me is what God says. I don't even trust myself fully. But when I read God's promises and I read his truth about what he says about me and his plan, well then that's what I stand on. That's what I depend on and that's how I get through the hard times and the false accusations. So his prayer is that they will do no wrong. It's important to him. It's important to him because it's important to Christ. It's important to Christ because it's an, God the Son, because it's important to God the Father, and we show our love to God through our obedience. Whoever has it's uh, whoever hears my words, I'm sorry, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Christ says in John fourteen, twenty one. So Paul makes it clear that obedience is is his. Best desires, his greatest desires. It's better for everyone if you repent and you walk in the ways of God. Either way, the church must be pure. God must be honored, and He will come and He will exercise discipline if they fail to repent. I'll talk about a parent analogy. Uh, that's our desire for children our parents desire for children is that they would walk in the ways of God that they would obedient because be obedient because we know that that's where the the best blessing in this life is offered is walking with God in obedience we're not we're not promised a smooth road as believers but we are promised that from a kingdom perspective it goes well with us when we obey the lord and for parents, discipline is not a fun thing. It's a necessary thing. I once, uh, and and we're, we're in anguish a lot of times, the fact that we have to administer discipline. I heard a story one time where a, a father was going to administer discipline to his daughter and, and he cried louder than she did, did it hurt him so much, to the idea that he had, he had to afflict discipline on his daughter. So there's that anguish in a parent's heart. And that father was all broken up. But obedience is a blessing all the way around. Walk in obedience. Love your God. Reputations. You know, while we're talking about reputations and and parenting, I think it's uh, important also to mention the opposite side or the opposite track. Now, we, we should want our children to walk in obedience because that's what honors God. That's what we're taught in Scripture, and that's why God created us. But it can get turned around. If we're not careful as parents, it's a big temptation to get for it to get turned around and that I want you to walk in obedience, so I look good. And all of a sudden, this this love and care... Got turned around, it's not so much about shepherding a child's heart and walking them in the ways of the Lord and doing what it takes so their eyes can be open. Now it's about me and my reputation. That can happen, it's a big temptation. It's true that our children are a reflection of us, but we don't want the tables to turn to where our children become tools. To shine the light on our reputation or our greatness or how we want to be perceived in the world. It's more important that their hearts are shepherded. And that means that if we're going to shepherd our children's hearts the right way, sometimes we're going to look bad in the eyes of the world. We're going to look bad in the eyes of the church sometimes. If we know our children's heart and mind and we know what it's going to take to lead them to Christ in the way, because not every it's not cookie-cutter parenting. And sometimes we're going to have to make decisions where others might think, hmm, some kind of parent you are. You're ruining your kids' lives. And we have to be careful about this. You Get out on the little league ball field and you can see some reputation stuff fly. Where kids just are the parents' tools to make them look like great parents or great coaches or whatever. We can also see it in the church if we are not careful. That's a self-love. It's not a selfless love. Parents should rather look like the Apostle Paul, rather look weak, even as a parent, if that's what it takes for my child to truly, authentically love God and have an obedient heart. The Apostle Paul prays for obedience. And he says, we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. And just quickly, that just means if you do walk in the ways of the Lord, then I can't come and throw my power around, you know. Some people want to look powerful and they just find ways to exercise power even when there was no wrong done. And he's saying that would go against the truth. I'm not going to do that. So just walk in the ways of God here. No disobedience, then there's no punishment. There's no severe use of authority. It's not about me. Secondly, he prays for the restoration. We're glad when we're weak and you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Restoration. We saw this we saw this word years ago, back when Corky uh, taught through the book of Galatians. It's been years ago now, chapter six, and it's been a couple of weeks. <clears throat> chapter six: one, so it's fresh in our minds. He just taught this. "Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you are to spiritual, you are spiritually. you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness." Uh, that's a great use of that word. This word is really rich in the New Testament. This idea of re- being restored. And so I want to read a, a lengthy definition from Timothy, scholar Timothy George. It could also be um, translated perfection. So restoration, perfection, in this context, in this verse in Corinthians, it's used in noun form, but most of the times it's used in verb form in the New Testament. So here's what he says. Um, so, uh, the verb form is more common. It's used for restoring something. Now, I, I'm, re- I'm taking the time to do this because the Apostle Paul is praying this. So I want us to understand what does he want that he's willing to put his time and effort and energy into praying this specific thing. It's used for restoring something to its original condition or to make it fit for its purpose. It's used to refer to restoring the walls of a city, preparing fabric so that it's ready to wear, preparing a remedy, preparing a vessel, preparing a body for sacrifice. It's also used for resetting a dislocated bone, outfitting a boat, equipping a child for adulthood and a solid education, or fully training a disciple to reach his teacher's level. The noun form for, it's used in Ephesians 4 for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. The verb form also appears in the New Testament with a sense of restoring something that is damaged, such as fishing nets, supplying what is lacking in a church's faith, or restoring those who have suffered from persecution in this world and restoring a church member who is called in a sin, Galatians 6.1. So it's, in this context, it's a restoration. It's, it's reclaiming something that something isn't right with this church and these individuals. It's not right. It's going to cause pain. It's going to cause havoc. And so Paul wants it to be set right. He wants it to be reconditioned, to be mended, to be unraveled and put back right. They need to relit their relationships, rethink the way they're looking at God and and the authorities around them and the people and the influences that are in their lives. So rightly said, obedience to God brings us to a place of wholeness. It's to be uh, complete, restored. Now, I love this because I believe that this is what the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is always at work doing. It's to make us what Christ has proclaimed us, whole and complete, righteous. A heart that fully loves God all the time, a mind that thinks right all the time, emotions that feel the right way all the time, and it all works in a harmony. It's a restoration in this way. And one, if one thing gets off, then it's out of kilter. And it doesn't function the way it was designed to function. It stays fractured, if you will. And he's saying or praying that they would be put back in order. All the different relationships. And here's how John MacArthur describes what it means to be restored. It's when everything... In your life connects. It's when your thoughts and your words and your belief system and your actions all are in perfect harmony. It's the absence of hypocrisy, hypocrisy, the absence of double-mindedness, and the absence of being two-faced or duplicitous or speaking out of both sides of your mouth. It's that wholeness, that honesty that can be defined only as one where everything comes together. When you believe, what you think, what you say, and what you do are perfectly in harmony and accord. Nothing is inconsistent. Nothing is out of sync. Anytime you breach that wholeness of what you believe, what you think, what you say, and what you are, that is a lack of integrity. Now, you think about the life of Christ. We are exhorted in Scripture to conform to the image of Christ. Christ, he lived... He. he Every aspect about him was in perfect harmony. He never did things in opposition to what he believed, how he felt, what he thought, what was right. All his relationships, his relationship with the world, his relationship with sinners, his relationship with God the Father, with his saints, with the church, all his relationships worked in perfect harmony. He always thought rightly about them and felt rightly about them. It wasn't blurred. It wasn't confused. It wasn't off the mark. It was a consistency with reality and truth. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants for his children. Galatians 4.19, we read this as well. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Because when Christ, and as Christ is formed in us, we become more whole and more complete. So there's always a a little anxiety, right? Getting back to parents, since Paul basically has the heart of a parent here. There's always a little anxiety in in a parent until the child's, you know, kind of fully grown and we're really hoping they're going to turn out okay, right? And then so we just, like, there's, there's some anxiety there and some anguish. Oh, my goodness, what have we done? Why did we, what have we gotten ourselves into? And then other times it's like, ah, oh, kids are the best. But until the final product, and that's what Paul's saying, look, I'm, I'm in this. I'm like a parent. My heart's with you, and I'm kind of in anguish here uh, watching you go back and forth and wondering what you're going to do here and what, what's this going to turn out to look like. Because if something goes wrong and it's not restored and it's not set right, then there's trouble. I think about the story in Samuel about Mephibosheth, one of Saul's descendants, who was, because the kingdom was being overtaken and invaded, he was a child, a young child, and he was rushed out and he had some kind of fall and his legs were broken or mangled and because of, the, my understanding is because they didn't have time to go see a doctor there they're running for their lives it didn't heal right and so he was crippled the rest of his life and we know that when, when injuries happen whether they're physical or spiritual if we don't take the time to set them in the position they're supposed to be it's going to cause not just that problem But then it begins to affect whole areas of our body and our lives. And it causes a domino effect of problems in those areas as well. It becomes crippling. We make bad decisions and we don't repent of them. We are crippling ourselves. We are walking around with fractured spiritual or physical lives in our relationship to God. It's going to hurt. And it only gets worse in some cases i once heard an illustration about making bread and i'm not a cook and i've never made bread i i eat plenty of bread and i appreciate the people in this church that make delicious bread but i heard this uh illustration that you take all the proper ingredients of whatever it takes to make bread i know flour's involved and i guess yeast and stuff and whatever you got to do to it right You've got to get all the proper ingredients, and if you take all these ingredients and you stick them in a bowl and you put the bowl in the oven and you cook it, you don't get bread. It doesn't work that way, even though you have all the proper ingredients. What you have to do, I'm un- I understand, or this illustration tells me, is you have to take these ingredients and you have to work them together first. You have to need them. You have to get all of the right ingredients so they're touching each other and intertwined with each other in that kind of wholeness and oneness and harmony. Then you put it in and you get the product that you're looking for. I hope that's correct. It sounded good to me, and so I put it on here and used it. But the, the, the proper ingredients have to come in contact, contact with each other to work in harmony. So spiritually speaking, all of our, the ingredients, our thoughts, our belief systems, our actions, our, our words, our feelings. They, they are to be in harmony with God's will, with God's plan, with God's truth. Interacting with each other, not conflicting with each other, going against or opposing each other, but interacting, and that way we, we glorify our Creator. We're welcoming God in every aspect and in every place in our heart and mind, even places that we're scared of where he might take us. We we decide, no, you know what's best and I want to walk in that kind of harmony with you. I don't want to limp through my spiritual life or be fractured in this way. And when we understand and embrace God's word, we begin to view him properly, we begin to view ourselves, we begin to view our neighbors as God would have us to see them. And it changes our heart. And we become enlightened and whole and we see what life is was really all about. It affects everything about us, this wholeness, this restoration. And he sums everything up as we wind down in verse 10. It's for this reason I write these things. While I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. I want to write these things to you now so that you can prepare yourself for the visit and it's not a bad experience for all of us. His goal is building up. So he prays for obedience and he prays for restoration. And this is a great passage for us to think about and to meditate on. You know, God, am, am I, is my life fractured in what way? And what can I do to restore it? What do I have to do before you? Where did I get off the path? Where's this source of pain coming from? Am I broken? Am I trying to pretend that everything... Is okay. What are the things I'm not dealing with that I need to deal with so I'm not crippled and that my spirit can grow in its proper form? In the human body, if just one thing is out of place, one thing is out of line, it can affect dozens of other things that would otherwise be healthy. Now, think of a pinched nerve. A pinched nerve in the cervical spine can directly affect sensations in the neck, head, shoulders, arms, hands, fingers. You may experience tingling or pins and needle sensations in the arms and hands. Carpal tunnel syndrome and tennis elbow are sometimes the result of a pinched nerve in the neck. It can f- affect our work. It can affect our Mood; It can affect our overall well-being. But when we restore that, when we bring relief to that pinched nerve, then all the other things work for us and come back into order. So I think we would do well to heed God's word and to embrace it as a gift to us this morning. Think about maybe praying for our obedience and, the rest and our restoration, but also not just ourselves like the Apostle Paul. Look for our brothers and sisters and, and praying for obedience in and, and their lives and looking at our church and praying for wholeness and restoration and wellness for our church. Because that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. It's not just a personal thing. He is praying for this for the church of Christ, that we would stay the course As the church of Christ. May God bless the preaching of his word.